Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Fine. I can't believe we're winding our way towards the end of another year. I don't know where this year's gone. It seems to have just flown by, but I know we say this every December. And our theme this month, postcards, I love that idea of thinking to the end of the year of what might happen next year and where we might go and where we might be sending postcards from. And I'm ready to leave this one behind, I think. Me too. It's been a tough year on so many fronts. It's funny, I was thinking about postcards and thinking about post and mail. I just had a really terrific run of post in the last couple of weeks. Lots of beautiful books from friends not for any reason it's not even been my birthday yet lovely letters Uh, for some reason people have been sending me letters and postcards and things which hasn't happened for a long time and I wonder if we're all realizing the kind of importance of reaching out in that kind of old-fashioned way somehow shall we start today's story yeah this is a piece called Satsuma which seems uh, appropriate for December because I always think the little oranges are best at this time of year And it's by Adrija Ghosh. The summer still had not turned into an empirical experiment of death tolls. It was still a quiet quagmire of simple signposting that youth is inevitably wasted on inebriated young adults, too far gone to appreciate a 9.28pm sunset from Carlton Hill or the July sky which had turned into hues of supper. Salmon pink, rhubarb sun, moon the size of a freshly baked kamiri, the stars around it sesame dust. The wind trying its best to fling us into the sea. Now, in retrospect, I think if the sky wants to surprise you, let it. Summer splashes with terrible ease on cobbled Lothian roads and as liquid miracles in crystal glassware. The gorse at the Salisbury crags transport me back to the deli of my memories and how the whole of NCR glittered when the golden weeping Amaltas greeted us. I could see the big one, the one which looked like a chandelier bang in the middle of our red college campus and the series of them opposite Surrey Fort, where we used to go for evening swims. The road lined with swinging laburnum, the smell of catapani from our post-workout grubbing, your clavicles catching the last of the chlorine water as you violently shook your hair for drying. In Edinburgh, it always rains. My jet black hair is mostly glistening. Sometimes. If a city wants to surprise you, let it, then leave it. On the escalator at Waverley Station, I catch a silent glint of you. A young mother in front of me is peeling satsumas for her boy. Over a smog-addled deli dusk, you had taught me the difference between the many weans of the citrus family. Which ones waft best in bakeries? the mandarin. Clementine is sweeter. Satsuma is the easiest to peel. Then you proceeded to teach me how to peel off skin better. Shall we stop there for a moment? Yeah, 
It's funny, the first time I read that last line that you just read about peeling off skin, it made me think of my father and the way he peels an orange, which is a very particular way. And I think if you're a Middle Eastern or you might have like kind of a family tradition of peeling things in a particular way so that they keep the peel in, in one piece of fruit or um, so that you can almost pile it back together again and it looks like an orange. But as you read it there, I wondered if it was a different kind of skin Um, because it seems like kind of a switch between fruit and the sort of what what you see is what you get discussion and then something deeper about a relationship or certainly an exchange between people. I'm interested in your dad's way of peeling oranges because my (laughs) mum also had a particular way of peeling oranges which came from the fact that she loved learning languages. One summer as a student she decided she wanted to learn Spanish and what better way than to just go to Spain and do it which was quite a sort of bold and brave and adventurous thing to do back in the day of no mobile phones and she went to Seville. And she did learn Spanish, but she also learned how to peel an orange, which is something that she taught us. And she had a very particular way of doing it that seemed to just lift off the pith and the skin, but leave the, yeah. you know, all the fruit without sort of bruising it or bursting the skin. So it's funny it's, your dad has that. You have that connection with your dad, too. Well, it's funny because when we were growing up, we didn't have the beautiful small oranges that you get here. You know, so when I spent my first Christmas in the UK, I was surprised by the boxes of satsumas and and clementines and things and they're so sweet and gorgeous you know it's delighted by them i wonder if the beginning of this story is talking about covid times that the, the summer hadn't turned into kind of covid yet is it fun? i was wondering if we're too far away from our covid times to recognize it or if the inverse is true if we're so close that i sort of projected onto every story because you know starting a short piece with the summer still had not turned into an empirical experiment of death tolls makes me think we must be saying this is before we knew the full weight of what was coming. Um, I think I read it in a different way in that, you know, that point just towards the end of the summer when it's just a bit hot and dusty and musty and everything feels a bit rotten. You know, yeah, the fruit yeah. has over ripened and there's wasps everywhere. and Especially and if it, they don't uplift the bins in Edinburgh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just, you know, the, the some of the European countries in August are really, although it's not just August now, really suffering from heat waves and it takes a toll on elderly people or unwell people and there is a sort of part of summer where everything just feels a bit hot claggy and rotten and I wondered if that was what the reference was to. It's funny because that makes me think of Venice and you know the smell of Venice in the summer is not nice whereas I had thought it was you know we still we hadn't gotten really deep into what was coming and so we were still doing those sort of quite youthful almost sweet and pure activities like going to watch the sunset from Carlton Hill. It's interesting because already in that first line, it feels like a postcard from another time. Like they're signposting that it's being written from a time beyond this time. This is already a postcard to us as readers from a time that something more is known, which I think is really great. And I think as well that that in itself, that first paragraph, it feels like a postcard. It's so descriptive. I love that connection between food and the hues of supper and the sky. 
the salmon pink and rhubarb sun. That is so evocative for me. I know exactly, you know, I've been on Carlton Hill, I've looked at the sunset, I know that sort of streaking that you get over the sort of Pollock Halls and across the city down onto Princess Street. Yeah, and the moon is a loaf of bread is a beautiful image with the sassanese around it. Yeah, it's an incredible description. I'd never thought of it, but now I will. You know, that kind of glittering feeling. Also, when you make a loaf of bread, which I know you and I both do, and then you pop it on the table and all the sort of sesames fall off and a kind of sprinkling around it. I think the moon is something that's hard to describe. It's been described so many ways and so many times that I think yeah. it's hard to find an original or a description of the moon that makes you stop and go, oh yeah, I like that, that's really good. Um, and yeah. Because I think we've become a bit sort of moon sodden. But then, you know, we go from that, which feels like it's a little postcard of its own, to a single line, which is the wind trying its best to fling us into the sea, which feels very Scottish. You know, I love this interplay between home, which is somewhere different, and Scotland, you know, which it's got to be the wind trying to fling us into the sea. It's got to be Scotland. I don't know about you, but that's where yeah. I am. And then this beautiful line again on its own, which is repeated later, if something wants to surprise you, let it. If a sky wants to surprise you, it definitely makes me think, like, how does a sky want to surprise you? My first response to that is, a sky doesn't want to do anything. You know, the sky is just doing its thing. But I think what the author is trying to say is, let yourself be surprised. Allow yourself, like, kind of give in to this idea that it, it's something you haven't seen before or haven't seen in this way before. Let yourself go in a nice yeah. way. Don't be so close to the experiences of what's going on around about you that you miss things. You yeah. Know, let them come into your consciousness. And I think that you get, I get that sense from the next paragraph as well, just the detail of observation that the writer has, whether in Delhi or in Lothian Road. Yeah, exactly. And in the next paragraph, we get someone shaking their hair. I'm already really clear that that's not Scotland. <laughs> As someone with long hair who almost never lets it dry because it's too cold, you know, just you get cold. So, you know, it's a, and then we f we flip between the rain in Scotland and the rain elsewhere and somewhere where it's warmer, presumably. It feels like this really easeful back and forward feeling of comparison in a way that doesn't feel forced at all to me. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, it's very gentle, isn't it? it just, it's like a sort of meandering path that you're going along and you're not quite sure at each turn whether you're in Edinburgh or India. It's interesting because it made me think about certainly when I first arrived in the UK and maybe even when I go back to the US now I have this constant sort of internal dialogue like that's not how we do it in fill in the blank or oh yes that's another difference between x or y and in fact I started making a note on my phone for example things that I'd forgotten Americans say because you know just I was conscious of the real differences in culture even though we share a language and certainly when I first arrived in the UK that was definitely my sense of like this is different here. And yet this paragraph seems to do the opposite. It, it's comparing the rain, but it's not setting them separately in a weird way. I feel like it's a really lovely mix of both. And it's okay to be both rather than being like, oh no, that's not home for me or that. It's just setting them beside each other and letting them be, which feels really kind and also very open in a way. And I think that's what this let it is about, isn't it? It's about tr trying to be open, trying to make yeah. yourself be open. 
And then when you get, sometimes if a city wants to surprise you, a city wants to surprise you, let it. And it's that same idea of like, for me, let yourself be open to the possibilities here rather than in contrast to or in resistance to the place that you come from or maybe somewhere that you know better or even the place you just left, you know, rather than always having this opposition in your brain, just let it, let it surprise you and let it come in and go out. Because the next line, of course, is then leave leave it. Exactly. (laughs) And that was going to be my question. You know, what do we make of that? We take the surprise and we go or, you know, to me, if you've been surprised somewhere, it might make you want to hang around for more surprises or to get to know it better. But the advice here is then leave it. Well, I wonder partly if if it's that idea that you you only see the things you see once you've left them, you know, so you only see you know, what's happening really in Britain. For me, for example, when I leave it and go back to a place that I know and with a different kind of familiarity, it then does become, those differences are in sharp relief. But I think what they're saying is open yourself and then if you want to see it more clearly, leave it. But I'm not sure I agree with that. Or at least maybe pause and go somewhere mm. else. I don't know. Yeah. Shall we read on? Yeah, for sure. We descended the steep stairs of the Kashmir Gate metro station, your hands sweetened with rumors of yesteryears. In Japan, eating satsumas without seeds made you prone to infertility, but they hardly have seeds, I giggled. Precisely why one must be picky, you confirmed confidently. In my small town, oranges were simply of one kind the ones brought in from Darjeeling. After coming to Delhi and being exposed to the exponential excess of options available in the market, the word satsuma became a word on body wash bottles. Prior to your presence, the word meant skincare or lather in plastic packaging, a frothy aroma, soap bubbles. Two of us in the shower, getting bruises all over our thighs because you were always so callous about where the ancient tap croaked and bumped me into it, despite my mouth open in all kinds of agony. Complaints had begun to take shape in pH levels, but my bubble of thought usually precipitated with the rest of our muck. The Scott Monument in Edinburgh always reminded me of our time at the Muthi Memorial near Kashmir Gate the second Lothian relic of that part of Delhi where you could see trains zooming in and out of red fort walls. The first relic is the Lothian cemetery where the heartbroken, headless Nick roams. I found it fitting because Delhi has a habit of running me down with old ghosts. We were going to our regular haunt that day to eat laughing from Tenzing Auntie and wash it down with the sickly, sweet fruit beer you loved so much. I just loved your tongue sweet. I was ever only truly greedy when it came to you. The mung bean had done wonders to our little adventure across the violet, seasick, yellow metro lines. It rained, remember? There were seeds in the satsuma and sesame in the cold noodles. Belly full, I had come home that day and looked the word up, satsuma also meant snails. Your leg snailing on my back, my hands snailing your morning hair, your study table littered with empty Heinekens snailing into an unproductive, beer-dunked weekend. 
We were agonizingly slow when we came together and slower when we had to give it all up. We were snails, you and I. We were mandarins, soap bubbles, silky skin. So there we get into the relationship. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like it changes from a postcard to a love letter. And I wonder if it's almost a postcard to themselves in a way that second half of kind of reminding themselves what happened or the beauty or the beautiful parts of it anyway. I thought it was interesting that Mandarin was the scent in the first half that wafts best. That's sort of the smelliest one, smelliest in a good way. And yet the second half is about how satsumas are the smell in body wash or whatever. That made me smile because I do remember having satsuma shower gel as a child. Yeah, I think it was one of the body shop specials of the time. Okay. And I I do love the kind of first half of it being about separation, about kids going up on hills and being reminded of things. And the second half kind of seems to embody that in a way, people coming together, you know, it's a much more internal or intra um, experience in terms of between two people. The first half seemed to me very much centered in place and the second half in person and and the relationship was happening kind of regardless of what the place was and what was going on in the outside. It's quite an internalized two people very much engage with each other in a way and not so aware as of letting the city surprise them or letting the moon surprise them because they're so focused on each other. Yeah, and I wonder in some ways whether that beginning part is almost a metaphor because we're talking about two different places, Scotland and presumably Delhi, and the differences between them and then In the second half, we've got two people who presumably also have their differences between them. You know, that whole, if you want, let something surprise you and then leave it feels, it's not said again, but it feels like it rings in that, those last lines because the relationship is definitely being looked at from the future when it's ended, I think, because it says we had to give it all up. Yeah. And so that idea of let something surprise you and then leave it feels a real, almost like a gut punch. I can hear it still ringing, even though it isn't written again, probably because it doesn't need to be, you know, once it's said twice, it's still ringing in our ears thinking, okay, well, it's coming. And sure enough, it comes because the language about the relationship is beautiful. You know, being in the shower or snailing hands and hairs in morning hair is lovely. Yeah. And you only get that with someone that you really love or care about. So it's a real intimacy, I think, in a way. So it makes me look back to the beginning or the first half that we were talking about and think about the intimacy between two places and how they'd really succeeded in interweaving them in a way that felt okay and intimate and like those parallels were being drawn without too much push in a way. And there's a sadness, I think, in that second half, particularly towards the end, that you picked out the line earlier, we had to give it all up. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it feels like there's something we don't know. It's not two people deciding that being together was no longer what they both wanted. It feels like there's something else, some compulsion or some something that's meant they've had to give it all up. Yeah, and of course I wonder if it's distance because the yeah. piece feels like it's about to, you know, two places and two people and so of course I jump to the idea that maybe they're in different places they have to give it up but I love that line for example I was only ever truly greedy when it came to you I think that says more than anything else about the relationship or the strength of the desire maybe or certainly the connection between these two people yeah that's a great Uh, that is a great line and that funny line about um 
eating satsumas without seeds makes you prone to infertility. It's very funny, isn't it? The idea yeah. that somehow what you put in your body, you know, I said, I started thinking, is that tr- not, is it true? But yeah. is that is the lore, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it might be too late for certainly for me, but yeah, I wonder if that's the lore, if you're if you're eating something and grapes is another great example, always had pips when I was growing up and obviously never does, almost never do now. That's been sort of genetically modified or certainly trained out of having seeds of its own, whether you're introducing that idea. I love that, that, you, you know, somehow you, your body takes that on, which I think is really beautiful. And again, that, that does a really wonderful thing of bringing that outside world, the fruit of the outside world, which can be a metaphor too, for lots of things into our homes, into a relationship and then into our bodies. It's like that kind of again that same placing something that seems very external or comes from a far-flung place into the intimacy of ourselves and our relationships and our bodies which i think the whole piece does beautifully too kind of making the unfamiliar incredibly familiar and almost something of intimacy between us um it's incredibly well done this story they all are the ones that we read but i'm particularly moved by its sort of postcardiness and yet you know, it feels like no matter how far you zoom in or zoom out, it all, it's all speaking to each other, which is a really unusual thing, I think, for something like this. So thank you, Adrija, for letting us have your story. We, we really enjoyed it. Shall we move on to a poem? Yeah, so this is a poem, Sonnet with Skylines from by Tim Tim Cheng, who is a wonderful poet based in Scotland. Uh, she's very kindly said that we can read it and talk about it, but why I wanted to read it. So just think about it as Claire, I think is going to read it aloud. Is it also formally takes somehow the form of postcards, I think, but think about it for yourself and then we'll talk about it. Yeah. I just wanted to, um, to flag uh, before I read it is that this is one that you definitely want to go and search out our newsletter and see it on the page because it's beautifully laid out and lots of interesting things happen with the form but I will just read it uh, first and we can talk about that. After Cynthia Miller's sonnet with lighthouses, the first skyline is my grandmother, the second is her silver front tooth, the third is foam, I open her window frame, climb onto the balcony and clean the glass. Sometimes I pick up her old laundry and I look down and out. The fourth is invisible. I have always lived on the first floor. The fifth is shy, folding itself over and over on my neighbour's windows. My name is not written into the sixth skyline a blazing web of roads jewelled by lampposts, estates from afar sheen like coins in a safe. The seventh is always thirsty. The eighth wells up. The ninth is a photo of Victoria Harbour on a clear day erected in front of the actual harbour in smog. The tourism board manifests itself. Stumbling into the tenth skyline, my friends and I drink it dry. Cheap leather and shisha stick, like second skin, we lie by the waterfront. There is no one else, no flashes in red and black, no office lights, just the sun entering glass panes. The eleventh is crumpled and stuffed into the mouths of those who, by harbouring, overtake. The twelfth expands like brass notes, like love. 
The thirteenth knows I am my own stereotype. I take an old friend to Garden Hill, where I identify as a giant stray cat. High-rises are shoebox stairs teeming with light. Around us, every leaf is a chicada. Their silhouettes are louder than cars. When he says he loves my city, I cut his outline from it, thinking I might be good enough for him too. The 14th skyline plays hide and seek, never found. Do you think these are mornings? Is she looking out the same window? Is it two weeks in her life? Or does it even matter? I don't know. I mean, 14, I definitely thought two weeks, you know, each one's a day. But I, but I don't know if that's just me jumping to the obvious and that, you know, 14 has a significance elsewhere. Well, and the, and the mention of her grandmother early on, and it's possibly feels like a grieving period, really. The grandmother definitely sort of looms large in it for me right from the start. I wasn't sure that they'd passed, but now that you've said that, I hadn't been thinking that they'd passed. I was more thinking that they were sort of the place from which the writer launched themselves, so the sort of the home from which they went out. But yeah, there is something. The silver tooth, I think, maybe is. There's something about the 11th crumpled and stuffed. Feels like a, a morning to me. But it also could just be a description of what you see out your window every morning. And actually the skyline, you know, whether you can see it or not and whether you can, you know, what you can see because in Scotland, visibility changes every day, you know, and I remember the times I spent, for example, this summer at the sea, when I was in a house on the sea, sometimes you could see the horizon and sometimes you just couldn't. And sometimes you could see the mountains beyond the horizon and sometimes you couldn't. And it was literally day to day it changed and I don't see why it would be any different in a city. Yeah, and there is that reference to the smog, isn't there, in the tourist board in action, putting a, putting the picture of the thing you can't see in front of it. Exactly. It made me think of that piece by Alice Oswald called Tithonus. It's a piece that was sort of done for performance, but then it's in a book. And it's when she went out from every day to see the sunrise between, I think it was sort of um, the spring equinox and midsummer um, and wrote about it and wrote almost in, in this sort of form. Sometimes it's just a couple of lines. Sometimes it's a little bit more. Sometimes it's just one line or very few words. And then it's crafted very cleverly into a piece that takes 46 minutes to read, which is exactly the time of sunrise the sunrise takes it's not the kind of thing we would necessarily read an open book because it would take too long to read but also it's you know it's uh there's not a lot of movement in it in the sense that it's coming at the same thing over and over again and because you become you know the poem itself almost becomes the rhythm and then the changes become the music if that sounds makes if that sounds too far a push so you know you're seeing the same thing and then every morning you're layering something different on top of it noticing that slight change a bit like i was talking about the sea but here tim tim does a beautiful job of showing us different things, both in the imagery, but also in the way that they're written. So, you know, you won't have heard that if you're listening to the podcast, but the eighth is right justified. The ninth is centered in a block of text. The tenth is broken up. Um, so every morning is visually different, but also the way it's laid out on the page is different, which means that we read it differently too. So, you know, even just showing us all the different ways morning can break in a different way is really 
a beautiful thing to do, I think. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit of what you've been talking about with that Alice Osmond piece of, is it Wendell Berry in the Timbered Choir? When yeah. he went out and did a similar walk every day and the collection of poems that he produced is that same sort of almost the same route or close to the same route, the same area, but different observations and different seasons and different times of the year. Yeah, those are his sun. Those are his Sunday poems, which I think is funny in some ways because if you know anything about the South, people will have objected to him not being at church, which is why he called it a timbered choir because that's his church. And every Sunday, rather than going to church, he took a walk and wrote a poem. And it's a beautiful book. If you don't know it out there, find it because it's a sort of collection of the best of those Sunday poems. I think the thing I love about it is it's so generous in its time. It feels a very slow, beautifully paced. It's quite a long poem, but it didn't feel, I didn't feel rushed in getting towards the end of it, which sometimes I think when you're reading a longer poem and you know other people are listening to you, you feel a little pressure not to take their attention too long. um, So you speed up, but there's so much space on the page. And I think there's so much interest created by the different formats. When you're looking at it, your part of your brain is kind of wondering why Tim Tim chose to set it out this way and why it's the eighth that's right justified and not the twelfth. You know, so it yeah. just fe- it feels very generous and spacious. And also generous in a different way. I'll I'll add to that, which I think is, you know, there's is it the tenth where Tim Tim wakes up? <laughs> Or is at the waterfront anyway at sunrise. So it's pulled an all-nighter. So it's sort of, and then again in the in the thirteenth, this idea of lying with someone and talking about a relationship or a friendship as a kind of cicada, which I think is a beautiful image. So there's not a holding back. You know, it's not a closing down. This poem. It's not a. I'm going to tell you how I outwardly see things. It's letting us in, which I think is a beautiful, that that image of a crumpling or welling up, crumpled and stuffed into the mouths of someone. I feel like it's a real opening in a way where sometimes poems can be distant, you know, can be telling us just what the poet sees or has seen others experience. It feels very intimate in a way and brave, I think. And I think the end does that. I mean, I sometimes feel in poems, the end almost closes down and finishes off the poem and sort of lets you shut the book and walk away but I think this ending the 14th skyline place hide and seek never found just continues what you've said about being really open and really inviting and really full of um, prospect and possibility yeah encouraging the reader to think what the 15th and the 16th skyline might be just saying we we haven't gotten there yet we're never going to get there effectively so over to you now you get to think about what comes next which is which i think you know we've talked about before i think that's what all most good poems do is to open a door for the reader to walk through and then let them on their way it really is a beautiful poem and i would commend you to go and look it up in our newsletter and see it for yourself on the page i think that's all from us today at open book thanks so much for having us in your ears and we look forward to chatting with you listening and taking part in open book workshops and other ways to get engaged with us in the coming year